Hello and welcome to the Wagtails podcast. My name is Megan Corcoran and I'm the director of the Wagtail Institute. In this podcast, I invite some pretty cool people to come and have a conversation with me on all things trauma, healing, education and well-being. I started this podcast as I realized some of the biggest learning that has happened in my career has been through meeting really great people that are working in the field and having great conversations with them. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Peggy Kern, a professor at the Centre for Wellbeing Science at Melbourne University. Peggy talks about the development of wellbeing science over the past decade and where it is headed next. She also shares her own personal experience with mental illness and shares some helpful insights and lessons picked up along the way. I'm really grateful Peggy joined me on this episode and I know you're about to learn a lot from listening to her. All right, welcome to the 18th episode of the Wagtails podcast. I have someone I've learned a lot from in um, in my time studying and then in my career as well. I've got Peggy Kern here. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. Um, thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, for those that are listening, it'd be great if people could learn just a little bit about who Peggy is. Uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I work at the Center for Wellbeing Science at the Faculty of Education at the University of Melbourne. I'm originally from the U.S., so I was born and raised in Arizona, and then I did my PhD at the University of California, Riverside, um, in health psychology. So I looked at uh, longevity so, ah, and healthy yep. aging. Yep. So I, w- I was actually working with a, a lifespan study, and I looked at personality and social predictors of longevity and healthy aging. Yep. So a full lifespan perspective. Awesome. And sort of what, pre- what, what predicted that, and yep. that got me interested in thriving in life. So yeah. who does well in life? And who struggles in life and yep. why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go to the University of Pennsylvania, the home of positive psychology. And I did a four-year postdoc working with Martin Seligman and Angela Duckworth. Um, and I got involved in the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program there um, as an assistant instructor and uh, worked with some students on their capstone projects. Mm -hmm. Um, And as part of my time there, I started working on a project with uh, Professor Lee Waters and St. Peter's College College Adelaide, um, looking at um, well-being or building well-being there. Um, And I ended up doing a couple trips to Australia um, which was my introduction to Australia. <laughs> How long ago um, was that? That was 2012 was the first trip. Oh, okay, yep. Um, and so uh, what happened at the time, uh, uh, Professor Seligman was uh, became the thinker in residence at um, uh, in Adelaide, mm-hmm. um, where he came for a period of time. And I guess you get to sit around and think about what they need. Yep. Um, and his suggestion was that they need to focus on measure and build well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then he put me up as an expert in well-being measurement um, because I had a big quantitative background. Yep. So um, statistics and maths and things like that. I had a background in that. Um, I actually knew nothing about well-being measurement. Um, <laughs> and so um, he sent me over to Adelaide as this well-being measurement expert. <laughs> I learned, I spent the month leading up to this trip 
learning everything I could about well-being measurement. <laughs> um, and so I upskilled myself very quickly. Yeah. And then I came over to Adelaide and met with government, met with schools, met with all sorts of people, gave talks about why we should measure well-being. Um, and as part of that, I came over to Melbourne and did a dean's lecture um, on why, well, why we should focus on well-being and why we should measure it. Yep. Um, that was my introduction to <laughs> Australia. Yeah. Um, and then uh, fast forward two years, um, I got I was invited back to Australia because they were convinced that they needed to measure well-being, and the question was how. So mm. we, had, we had moved from the why question. We we were introduced yep, so we to that. So we finally decided, yes, we're going to do we're, it. We're going to do that. Yep. And the question became, well, how? Yeah. And um and and so so I came back with a much more nuanced understanding of what of these questions around not only why well being but even should we measure well being, mm-hmm. and if so, what do we actually do? to yeah. measure well-being and under what circumstances and who should be measuring it. So I had a much more nuanced perspective about even what well-being is and how we should go about measuring it and what that actually looks like. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I was on the job market. So I had been a postdoc for the past three and a half years. Um, I was looking to, to leave UPenn. Um, it was It was – a hard environment for me to be in. It was a very high pr- high pressure environment, mm. um, and I was looking to leave that environment. Yeah. Um, and I was I was kind of open in terms of even staying in academia. So I was oh, thinking of, of yeah. actually not even. I was thinking of maybe I'll actually leave academia. Yeah. And um, I was really didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was on this trip to Australia, I was asked the question, would you consider living in Australia? <laughs> and I was like, maybe I would. I was open to anything. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Lee Waters at that time was setting up the Center for, for Pos- Positive Psychology, which it was called at that time. Yeah. And she actually wanted me to come and be a part of the center. Um, and so they wrote a job description, which fit me exactly. Perfect. So, um, you know, it, uh, has skills in well in well being, um, preference uh, of working with a MAP program. Yeah. Um, you know, st- has has um, expertise in statistics. You know, they were like everything that ticks the boxes for yeah. for me. Yeah. So I applied for the job, and lo and behold, was given <laughs> a job offer. Yeah. And um, and when I thought about it. Um, and I actually had another job offer at the same time for a school in California. Oh, like at an actual high school or? Uh, no, for a university. A university? Oh, yeah. yeah. So you're still looking at the academia. I was still looking at ac- academia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I had another job offer. And when I considered the offer to live in Australia, I was like, uh, I was like, you know, I have the opportunity to live in Australia for, it was two years position. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not deciding the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, it's just two years. Yeah. And if I say no, it's just an opportunity. Yeah. And if I say no to this, I'm going to regret it. Mm. And so I pick, packed up my life and I moved across the world. <laughs> and uh, nine years later, um, or nine and a half at this point, yeah. um, I'm still here. 
and um, have become an Australian citizen. Amazing. Congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And um, became an associate professor and um, now recently have become a professor, well, will be a professor. Yeah, the news just came out this the week. The news just came out, yes, yeah. that starting at the beginning of the new year, I'll be a professor. So yeah. um, it's been the right place for me. Mm. Um, and, um, I, and so that's how I got here. Amazing. Yeah, what an experience and what a journey as well. Um, I'm really curious as well, because you're mentioning that like UPenn was a really um, tense or tough environment to work in as well. Um, I find it really ironic when we're talking about well-being and we're, we're working in a way where we're trying to teach people about well-being and spread well-being further, yeah. um, that the environments that we work in sometimes are really tough. You know, I, th- I think it's an interesting thing and I think it's something I've seen across the field in working mm. in it is I think there's a lot of a lot of us that work in the well-being space that we're much better at focusing on the well-being of others than focusing yeah. on our own well-being. And I'm guilty of that. Mm-hmm. I, I've done a lot of work working on other people's well-being at my own expense. Yeah. And I think we need to actually, you know, and I'm guilty of, of doing this, that I've I've sacrificed my own needs mm. for the fo- to, in order to focus on the needs of others, and I think yeah. we who practice and research in the field need to actually take a hard look at ourselves mm. and actually be saying, you know, are we actually putting our own oxygen mask on? Are we actually walking our talk, or are we actually f- sacrificing our own needs? for the sake of others yeah. because we need to actually be living our own well-being. And I think um, we're asking those questions at the Center for Well-Being Science. Yeah, good. Um, so we are really asking those questions, you know, we for the first several years, mm. you know, we were acting very much as a startup and just sort of taking on projects and trying to set up teaching and yeah. everything. And I think there was a lot of sort of pressure even in our environment yeah and so there was there there has been a lot of strain on our staff in the university setting there's a lot of strain on staff yeah um and i think if you go into schools and whatnot or Mm. workplaces or whatever your well-being coordinators there's a lot of pressure oh absolutely and and so you know we need to be thinking about how can we actually relieve some of that pressure so that that we we care for the caretakers Mm, absolutely and in in my own life i've been really challenged with that as i've struggled with my own mental health issues yeah and i've been forced to actually ask those questions and actually step back from my work in the field in order to focus on my own Mm well-being so that i I have to be well so that I can actually help others to be well. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what's that looking like for you at the moment, Peggy? What are you coming up with or what are you finding out? Um, what it looks like at the moment is it has meant that I've, I've had to, to step back from my role mm-hmm. and work part-time. Yep. Um, it means I'm spending a, a actual time on self-care. So doing things instead of working all the time, um, I was working more than full time. Oh, yeah. And I don't um, doubt that because I met you in, it would have been 2018 and 2019. And yep. yeah, there was definitely evidence of that when I met you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what I'm learning now is that I, I, I can't work at that rate yeah. anymore. Yeah. I need to actually have boundaries around the work that I do. So I have my work time mm-hmm. and when I have my work time, I give everything to that work. And so it's really focused work time. Yep. But then I have non-work time 
which is rest time. Yeah. And that's where I'm I'm filling up my bucket mm-hmm. and really giving to myself doing the things that I enjoy doing that is going to to let 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 out that stress that I feel. Yeah. You know, so for me um being active, so cycling, running and swimming those are things that, that I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, and not I, even just at a base level. You do that at a pretty... Uh, I, I do that. I, 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 I do enjoy uh, yeah, sometimes endurance, ext- <laughs> endurance uh, events. Yeah. Um, so some of that is, is I take that to an extreme as well. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, and then I have a dog. And I'm finding spending, you know, taking my dog mm. to the dog park yeah, and just playing fetch with her and just the look of joy on her face. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a positive intervention right oh, there. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I can't just focus on my work if I have a dog mm-hmm. that is just waiting for me to take her to the park. Yeah. You know, and so what it looks like is me having boundaries around the work that I do. And actually saying that I need to actually focus on my own well-being. And that's not being selfish. In not the past, In the past, my thought was, mm. you know, focusing on myself is being selfish. Yeah. And that was, that was a misunderstanding in my mind. Mm. And what I'm learning is actually it, the selfless thing is actually taking care of myself. Yeah. And by doing that... I can actually better serve others. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I think my I've gone into the place in, in in my career where I feel like I'm an example to others, and so I can actually model that to others. Mm, yeah. And I've I've chosen to share my sto- story with others about my own struggles with my own mental health, and my choosing to actually focus on self care, mm. and and those choices that I'm making so that others can follow my example. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that. I've, I've seen that you've been quite public about your journey and your recovery and, and the fact that you are talking about yourself and looking after yourself now as well. Um, yeah. So what, what's sort of um, that looked like for you in the past couple of years? What's, what's been happening for you? Yeah. So uh, over the past couple of years, um, I, my, I, I struggled a lot with my mental health. So dealing with um, from trauma that, that I've experienced in my past um, that was re-triggered mm-hmm. as we went through the COVID lockdown. Yeah. Um, so I was dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. Um, yeah. and depression and anxiety um, and, um, and pretty severe levels of, of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had to, I've spent quite a bit of time in, uh, the Melbourne clinic, which is a private mental health institute here in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and getting, getting support from, from there. So it's actually been really fascinating mm. to actually be the patient yeah. as opposed to actually being the, you know, the facilitator yeah. and the teacher and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's actually, been very like it's it's interesting being the patient but I'm also a psychologist and so I'm observing my own experience and so I've learned a lot about you know cognitive behavioral therapy Mm. dialectical behavioral therapy acceptance and commitment therapy um, these different treatments that in many ways we should be teaching these proactively to our young people, to our adults, that there's a lot in these therapies that should not be taught 
after you've already fallen off the cliff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there there are a lot of skills in this that we as people working in the well-being space should be teaching people. Yeah. And it's actually influencing when I'm giving talks now, I'm actually bringing DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy concepts into the talks mm-hmm. that I'm giving. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually bringing those skills into the talks that I'm doing. Yeah. And so I can actually bring forth some of these skills that I'm, I've been learning through my time in hospital yep. um, into the teaching that I'm doing or into the, the talks and stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's, uh, and, and I think the other thing that I've really come to really value through this period of struggle um, is even my own understanding of what well-being and flourishing is. Um, and I really like Corey Key's model oh, of, of uh, flourishing. Yeah, huge fan. <laughs> yeah. Um, I use it in all of my work all of the time. Yeah, yeah. because Corey Key's model really suggests that you can have mental illness and you can still have flourishing. Yeah. You know, and I think if you have experienced mental illness, that's a very freeing model because that says mm. that you don't have to get rid of the mental illness to actually still experience flourishing. Yeah. And I think that's that's a much more hopeful model than a single line that says you if you have il- mental illness, you have to get rid of that to actually experience flourishing. Yeah. It's that's an either or. Yeah. Whereas actually yeah. A, the dialectical perspective is that it's an, it can be an and. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's, a, that's a dialectical perspective yeah. that, that arises from DBT. Yeah. Amazing. I'm really sorry to hear that it's been such an intense time for you, um, but it's, it's fascinating to hear your learning coming out of it as well. And it makes me a little bit curious because I know when we look at positive psychology, we look at that as a, a teaching and learning and a preventative model. Like we look at it as a let's, let's ensure people have access to this so they can influence their own well-being. Um, but what you're suggesting and encouraging now as well is that there's actually some therapeutic uh, models and practices that we should actually be learning and be more proactive about with young people and just with general population as well. Hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. So that's yeah. fascinating. So, so I think I think what what happens is you have the sort of the clinical world. Yeah. And then you have the well-being world. Yeah. And the two don't really talk to each other mm. enough. Even though if we actually look at the st- statistics, there's a lot of people in the in the well world that you know, actually have either have or will experience mental illness. Yeah, for sure. And so there's a lot that we could be learning from the clinical world that we could actually be bringing into what we're doing in the well-being space. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I think it's a shame that it's sort of like you have to actually drop off that cliff into mental illness to actually learn all of these different sort of like skills and tools and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's a fascinating sort of angle as well. I'm sort of, um, I guess I'm curious to talk to you too because it's been a few years since I was in the the pod psych masters um, and I know we've been looking at second waves and third waves yep. of the pod psych world as well. Um, so do you have any insights about where it's headed at the moment and what's what's emerging in the pod psych world at the moment? Yeah, so I think what's what's emerging in in this post psych world is really a movement toward complexity, mm. um, and this is what I've I've we've written about when we think about the waves of of post psych. Yeah, um, and that movement towards complexity is complexity in several different different ways. So number one is complexity in terms of the the audiences that or the the participants that we're including in our studies. Um, and so the original studies were sort of like your, your 
a lot of Americans, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of like white, middle-aged, slightly depressed people um, that are willing, you know, your convenience samples that are willing to be in, in pulse psych studies. Yeah. Um, and what we're seeing now is a spread into a lot more different populations. Mm. And for instance, there's, I've, I've been involved in quite a few studies now, especially working with my, my PhD students, looking at, well, what is well-being with highly sensitive personalities? Yeah. Um, what is well-being for Ashtanga yoga practitioners? Mm-hmm. What is well-being for X, X, Y, Z? Yeah. You know, so what does well-being, what do, what, how is well-being conceptualized for different populations? Mm. And that becomes an important question because we have to understand how well-being is conceptualized in order to actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. If we just layer on our own understanding of well-being, then we might actually be missing that person's perspective yeah for and sure. then we're, we're we're sort of like we're not ta- we're not seeing eye to eye yeah with the people that we're actually trying to to influence yeah um and so i think one one way we're we're dealing with complexity is actually looking at different populations a second way is with our methodologies is we're bridging out from sort of the you know like randomized control trials or experiments um, and correlational studies. And we're we're bridging out to things like using big data Mm -hmm. or using biodata, using um, rich picture mapping, using qualitative methods, mixed methods. So we're we're bridging out the methodologies that we're using. And I think, you know, now we have AI technology Mm -hmm. that's coming in and and so there's, I mean, with with one of my students, we're playing with how we can analyze qualitative data with AI technologies. Mm, yeah. You know, so that's exciting. Yeah. We're, we're exploring that world. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, if we can actually analyze qualitative data, that's a whole different way we can collect data. If, if we can have people write, write their narratives for yeah. us. And then we can analyze that. Then we can actually get away from survey data. Yeah. You know, yeah. because people are tired of filling out surveys. <laughs> yeah. You know, sure. and if you fill out a, a survey on your well-being, what are you really telling us? Yeah. You know, what do those numbers actually mean to you? Yeah. That's an open question. Yeah. You know, yeah, and I've created so. a lot of those surveys. You know, yeah, I've created yeah. some of these surveys, but when you're checking those numbers, I don't necessarily know what you're thinking. Exactly. And we I, might have completely different scales in our heads of what that actually means Exactly. To us as well. Whereas yeah. if you like write a narrative for me, then I'm actually getting the words that's coming in, out of your own language. Yeah. And, but the problem is, it's hard to actually analyze that if I'm doing that by hand. Yeah. If we can automate that, then that actually gives us a whole new oppor- opportunity in terms of, of actually getting into people's heads. Yeah, that's really exciting. And so that's, that's another way that we're looking more at complexity. Yeah. Um, and so the methodologies that we're using. Um, and then uh, there's, um, let's see here, what's, what's the other ways of, of complexities that we're, we're bridging out? Um, uh, the, and then there's, there's thinking about this whole idea that we were talking about with dialectics here. 
So it's it's sort of holding that space for both the positive and the negative. Mm-hmm. Um, this comes from the second wave of yeah. pod psych. Yeah. So I think we're pulling that from the second wave into the third wave yeah. um, and letting these dialectics. So dialectics are two things that are seemingly contradictory, yeah. but they can coexist. Yeah. So for existence in dialectical behavioral therapy, a d- the main dialectic is acceptance and change. Yeah. So you can't change without acceptance. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I think you can have mental illness and you can also have well-being. Yeah. You know, so I think there's a lot of dialectics that are out there that can coexist that we can actually accept and bring into third wave, uh, pause psych. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the, the other complexity that I think we really have is this acceptance of, of the world as a messy place. Mm. And so we actually have to sit with that complexity. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, we actually need to be thinking from a systems perspective, mm. which takes us beyond individuals. Yeah. And so we can't just look at the individuals themselves. We have to actually think individuals in with, systems, yeah. within the systems that they are a part of yeah. and the interactions between the individuals and the systems that they are a part of, Yeah. which is a much, that's how we do those studies is, is, is a lot more challenging to do that yeah absolutely than to just sort of think about the individual give you a survey do a correlational study on that and there i have my answers yeah if i want to be thinking about well there's an individual that is part of a whole system and how do i take into account the different parts of that system Mm -hmm. you know even asking that in a questionnaire that's a lot more complex yeah very much that's a lot harder to do (laughs) yeah but it's much closer to reality yeah. and capturing the reality that people are actually living in. Yeah. And so I think that's where we're heading in or where I'd like to think we're heading in Paul psych. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I think we need to head in Paul psych. If we're really going to be capturing people's realities and capturing people's realities so that we can actually really influence people's realities. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So really understanding it before we can actually then know what we're even trying to create or trying to do exactly. moving forward. I think, I, yeah. I think what Paul psych has done um, what it did was when PauseSec came about, people got really excited about mm. it and they moved right into let's just start playing yeah. and let's just start creating interventions. Interventions and, and, was and, a big thing, yeah. And it, it, which, which was good in the early days because you just needed to actually get excitement going for the field. Yeah. But now as the field has matured, we need to move on to much more systematizing things and, and understanding yeah. what works for who under what conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware, but I actually teach the uh, positive psych subject at Monash at the moment. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's an interesting one because it's um it's sort of developed to be pretty base level because they only get one subject yeah. in it for their whole degree. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting one because it's like the, the students come in really curious and some definitely a little bit skeptical. Um, and it's an, always an interesting one. And I'm always trying to think about systems lens and just like where pod psych is heading rather than staying at this sort yep. of base level. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's a tricky one to play yeah. because, because, you know, we, we want to get people excited about it. Yeah, that's You right. know, and that's where, you know, just tipping your toe in and just playing with some of these interventions. Yeah. You know, people experience that positive emotion, yeah. which gets them actually interested in it. Absolutely. But then, you know, that's, you know. To keep the reality going. To keep though, the reality yeah. going, you know, yeah. it, it's those one-off interventions are not going to be, you know, like 
I, I was always skeptical of those one-off interventions, you know, or yeah. just do this for like six weeks and yeah. then you're going to be like happy for yeah, three months for or, three months yeah. down the road. You yeah, know, yeah. how practical is that, that yeah. this is going to have this over overarching effect on your life? Yeah. Well, maybe it does if it completely, ch- if it really does give you a shift in your way of thinking Mm. then it could have that effect yeah so that's where we start to get out what are the mechanisms underneath things Mm. and you know uh intervention that just change if, if it can change your underlying mindset yeah then it could actually have that lasting effect yeah for sure and that's what we're trying to get at when we actually try to get people out of that just you know, status quo thinking. Mm. We're trying to get them to say there's another way to think about things. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's what I think at that beginner level, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of jumpstart things yeah. and say you don't have to be just like, you know, just getting along in life. Yeah. There's a different reality there. Here's a taste of it. Yeah. So that you can actually explore that more and find things that will actually work for you to, to actually live that more positive reality. Yeah. That's a really good way of uh, framing it, I think, and a bit of a reassuring way for me when I'm trying to cram something into 13 weeks where I'm yeah. like, where should I go with this as yeah. well? Yeah, I think that that's a really good way of reflecting on it too because I always find by the end of the subject, students have a new perspective around it. They've had a taste. They've had a think. They're starting to think about would they apply this with clients in the future? Would they apply it to themselves? Yep. Um, yeah, I, th- I think you're, you're really trying to think about, you know, it's we're, we're, we're thinking about the mindsets that people have. Yeah. And the mind, we're, what we're trying to do in those 13 weeks is shift that mindset from one of I'm just trying to get by in life. Yeah. To I can get by in life with, well, well f- feeling this sense of, of well-being in my life. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we're trying to do. And there are positive habits that I can yeah, do. Yeah, that's right. Here's a toolkit that I can There's take along the way. a toolkit that if I regularly practice these things, I can experience that sense of well-being. Yeah. And it's something that I have to keep doing. Yeah. So the well-being does not just happen. If I keep practicing these things, then I can experience well-being. Yeah. So that's that other part of it is it's not just sort of, okay, I did that well-being course. I'm going to be happy now. Mm. I have to actually keep doing these things and I have to actually work at my well-being in the same way that if I want to be physically fit, Mm. I have to keep working at my physical fitness. Yeah. I can't just do that gym membership for six weeks and then I'll be physically fit for the rest of my life. Yeah. I have to kind of keep going with, you know, I have to keep going to the gym or I have to keep walking or I have to keep you know, doing something to keep my fitness going, you know, that's the other message that we're, we're giving in that 13 weeks is number one, there you can, can experience well-being. There's things you can do to experience well-being and, but you have to, you, you have to do something. Yeah. yeah. It's an it's application. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so you have to do things. The key is to find the things that work for you. Yeah. Here's tasters of things that you possibly can do. Yeah. And so try things out, find what works for you, and then keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious about yours too, Peggy, like your own practices and what you do, because I guess over time you've had the full taste of all I've of the I've had the full talking. taste, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I yep. know that for you, like you've already mentioned, exercise is a really big one for you. But I was just wondering if you wanted to talk about what your practices do look like, maybe in a bit more depth, and whether you've changed them over time Yeah, as well. so, so, and it, it, it is fascinating working in this space, um, I think, going along with the the mental mental health issues that I experienced 
it was sort of like I, I, I think that the the well-being practices actually kept me going much longer that that I before I crashed. Yeah. You know, than yeah. than I would have otherwise. Yeah. Um, uh, gratitude is a huge practice for me. Mm. So being grateful for, for the good things that are there. Yeah. Um, and that one has stayed with me kind of, even as I've, I've struggled with my mental health, um, with, with mental illnesses, I've still worked very hard at being grateful for the good things that are there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I feel like gratitude, it's almost like any person who mentions it, it's not something that someone talks about as a past practice. I feel like if you've got a a gratitude practice, you hold on to it. You hold on to it. And it's, you know, you can't be bitter and, and be, have gratitude at the same time. Yeah. You know, and so that's, that's a really important one. Um, that I would really, you know, really encourage people to, to, to really find, find ways to be grateful for the Mm. good things that they're there because there, there's always good things that are there. Um, you know, and I like the quote, each day is not good, but goodness can be found in each day. Yeah, I love that as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, uh, so I think that's one, one that, that I'm really finding now that I really struggled with for the longest time. Um, but I'm really embracing now is is Kirsten Neff's work on self compassion. Mm, I had a feeling you were about to say that. <laughs> um, so yeah. that that one has been uh, a hard one for me to learn because mm. um, I pushed it away, and I I I, I, I struggled much more with self harm as opposed to self compassion. Mm-hmm. But I've really taken that on now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that has three components self-kindness so being kind to self uh common humanity mm-hmm. so seeing our com our our you know i'm human yeah you know I, i'm not perfect but no one is yeah exactly um yeah. and then mindfulness yeah um and so and and i would expand on mindfulness so i've i've really am practicing mindfulness and and that's an interesting one because i was very skeptical of mindfulness for a very mm. long time i always loved like when mindfulness was becoming popular, then like every conference that you go to, someone would be like, okay, we're going to have our mindfulness talk and all the good pause psych practitioners would all get into their perfect position. And I would (laughs) just like have my eyes rolling in the back, like, here we go again. Yeah. Even though I was doing studies on mindfulness and seeing the benefits of it. Yeah. Um, And then as, as part of, of the, the kind of courses I've done through the clinic um, they forced me to do mindfulness. And yeah. so I was kind of like, well, if I'm going to be forced to do mindfulness, I might as well like actually like I do it properly. <laughs> do it properly. Yeah. And, um, and lo and behold, I realize I, I get a lot out of, out of doing mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do mindfulness. That's right. Yeah. So I was curious about what yours looks like. Yeah. Mine, my, what, what works well for me is, is number one, informal yeah. m- mindfulness. Yeah. Um, so like swimming for me is my m- yeah. most mindful activity because yeah. I'm just focusing on counting and breathing mm-hmm. um, and then breathing meditations. Mm-hmm. So anything with the breath works well for me yeah. um, and counting. Mm-hmm. So that focuses my, my mind very well. Yeah. Um, I don't do well with the imagery, mm-hmm. imagery ones. Yeah. So my mind just, I have a hard time visualizing. Yeah. Um, and so I struggle much more with those. And so, again, it's finding there's lots of ways to practice mindfulness. Absolutely. And so the key is to just find the mindfulness practice that works for you. And some of them are much more, you know, it can be listening to a recording. You know, some of it can be 
Um, you know, it's just focusing your mind on an object. Um, you know, so it can be very informal practices. Yeah. Um, and um, so it's it's finding what works for you, yeah. which is the key thing. It's such a key because I think there's sometimes a misunderstanding when we think there's about mind. There's a huge mind. misunderstanding. Yeah, we often just associate it immediately with meditation. Yep. Yeah, and it's very yep. it's actually very different. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I think finding what works for you in the same way that with well-being practices, finding the ones that work for you, you know, it, it's all about person fit. Yeah. And yep. there's no one right thing. Um, that, but it's finding the ones that work for you. Yeah. That's, that's what, that's what's, what's, what's critical. Yeah. Um, and another mindfulness one for me is, you know, I, I, I is spending time with my dog, yeah, you know, it's just sort of like the, the, the feel, the being, being mindful about the present, being present with, with my dog. Of course. You know, there, yeah. there's, there's a lot of informal mindfulness that's happening right there as I'm caring for this 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 little creature in my care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so much about pets that can be so good for us. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then and then I think uh the other practice for me is spending time in nature. Mm. And that's that's one that comes up for a lot of people just the the benefits of of spending time in nature. Yeah. And if you don't have nature to go to bringing nature in. Yeah. Um we the studies show the benefits of of nature um and so that's another one for me yeah well it's exactly why actually i used to live in the northern suburbs it's actually why i moved south it's just so i can see the ocean every day yeah like it's it's huge yep. part of my well-being practice yeah yep. yeah it's a big one i'm curious about your endurance sports then as well and where that all fits in and what you get out of all of that yeah so uh speaking of my endurance sports <laughs> um so i cycle swim and a run and um Recently did a 35K walk um, to, to, to raise funds for mitochondria, which I actually did not know what mitochondria was. Yeah, and, I don't think I do. <laughs> um, it's actually a, a disease that one out of every 200 uh, people actually suffer from. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and it actually can really shut down the system um, and be very problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned about it because I signed up for this event. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, so, so, and I did not train for this walk at all because I was spending time in the mental health clinic. Yeah. Um, but I still decided to do the walk. Um, so it's, it's almost like because I, I spend so much time doing things extreme cognitively mm. thinking, mm-hmm. it's almost like I need to balance that with sort of extreme physical things and so it's almost like it's an outlet for me Mm -hmm. that it's almost like I need to balance sort of the cognitive with the physical yeah and so I I think it's a way that that my mind just sort of works then I it's it's a way of sort of like balancing myself out yeah um and so um it's it's challenged to myself but it's sort of like um for for some reason, I just find like it it's 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 crazy at the time, and you want to quit, you want to, mm. you wonder why you do it, but at the same time, um, I, I enjoy challenging myself with with these endurance events. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 one that that I've done. Um. 
over the years. So I've in the past I've I've done I've done twelve marathons. Twelve. Twelve marathons. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, one 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 marathon and oh, finished amazing. second in another one. Oh wow! Back in yeah. back in back in when I was fast, like <laughs> when I was in uh, my. I, this all started when I was a uh, a grad student. Yeah. Um, so my first year in grad school, um, which I'm assuming would have been a really intense cognitive time for you. It, so it he, was, yeah. yeah. It was, so yeah. so it was fascinating. So yeah. my first year in grad school, um, I I was actually alone on New Year's Eve. I was feeling pretty low, and uh, I was like, and then like the thought struck me that I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be down on myself. I'm going to come up with a, a resolution. I was like, I'm going to run a marathon. Um, now most people would say I'm going to run a 5k, you know, <laughs> yeah. so most people would, would, would start with a little goal. No, like I've, I've always just been sort of extreme. like extreme. Yeah. Um, and so I got online and found like there's couch to marathon, um, in six, six months yeah. plans. Um, and so I found a couple of these. I only had, and, and my friend was going to run the, the San Diego marathon. And so I was like, perfect. I'll do that with her. Um, and I, I, I had five months until the marathon. Um, so I just like <laughs> cut off the first month and just went out and the next day ran 8K because that was what the schedule Second said. Month, yeah. Even though I had not, I was not a runner at all. Yeah. Um, so that was my first training run um, in these like n- total non-running shoes, totally beat up my feet and then had to like go and uh, buy actual running shoes <laughs> on my way home from that. Um, and so that was my introduction to, uh, sort of extreme sports. Yeah. And, 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 and I ran my first marathon. It was awful. I hated it. I said never again. And then two weeks later I was like, well, maybe I could do another one. <laughs> and I was hooked. Um, and, and so I think it was, there was always like, it was almost like I, that extreme cognitive with that extreme physical mm. that is just, just something about the way my 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 mind and body works that yeah there's there's sort of this balancing that i need yeah um and and more recently as i've i've done less of the cognitive i've needed less of the physical yeah that's interesting too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so it's sort of dialing them both up at the same time and dialing them back down when you need yep. to rest yeah 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 makes a lot of sense yeah yeah um, and Peggy, something that it was interesting to me as well before you sort of arrived, I was trying to think about like what you've researched and what you've dived into. Um, and a lot of my capstone work is around belonging. Yeah. And I know that that was a huge area for you as well. So just wondering if that's an area that you're still looking at or if any of your PhD students are diving into um, and where things are heading around belonging. Yeah. So uh, a lot of my work around belonging has been has worked with uh, Dr. Kelly Allen. Yeah. Who is um, who's, the reason I have the job at Monash? Yep. Yep. <laughs> and uh, ex uh, world expert on belonging. Yeah. Um, we uh, uh, are continuing to work on belonging. Um, actually, we're, we're we're working on a chapter right now. Oh, cool. Looking at um, sort of um, uh, like cultural. Uh, influences mm-hmm. on belonging, um, so sort of, um, uh, uh, yeah. So so much more from sort of like a lot of belonging research is sort of thinking from the individual perspective. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then we have sort of like belonging has. We we've always talked about belonging sort of being within sort of the social milieu mm. in which it occurs, um, and so this is looking more at sort of that that cultural 
yeah pers- you know those those cultural levels well what well, what are those yeah and how does that influence the the experience of the longing mm-hmm. um and um and but beyond that um we uh, are also talking about at the center we're talking about um thinking more about could we actually come up with with a measure of belonging mm-hmm. um and actually thinking about novel ways of measuring mm-hmm. belonging mm-hmm. so could we actually do it again bringing in uh the ai yeah so actually having people write about what belonging is to them yeah using that to actually generate items yeah for belonging um and then actually and then actually giving people items and then using something called um, item response theory mm-hmm. to refine that. So what happens is you end up with a, a kind of a, it's kind of uh, hard to explain, but basically you have a whole pool of items so that the, when someone starts to take the pool of items, they take one item and then depending on how they respond on that, it they oh, get it depends what like, it depends get shown next. what they get shown next. Yeah, okay. So it's almost like the eye exam, where it's yeah. sort of like you you, yeah. you you get one item and then that they they adjust your what what you see and then is is it yeah. A or B? Yeah. And then so you only need a, a smaller number of items, and we want to pilot this so that we could look at other well-being scales, so that you could actually get measure well-being mm. without having really long scales. Yeah. So it's actually kind of trying to think about piloting it. So this is something that we're talking about doing at the center. Yeah, cool. Um, focusing yeah. on belonging yeah. as sort of a prototype to then look at other areas of, of well-being as well. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So watch. we can often have a simplistic um, view of, of someone's measure of belonging as well. Or And I even look at the school data that they often collect through the PISA studies, and it's just a simple yes or no question. Right, yeah, right. Like, so do you feel actually... like you belong at school? Yes or no? Right. And then we go, oh, you know, like 28% of students don't. Don't look. belong. And it's like, yeah. well, what does that mean? What does and it mean? To what extreme levels yeah. are they thinking and this? And what are they actually thinking? What, what yeah. are students actually thinking about when you, they ask about belonging? Yeah, and how was like, how, what's influenced them up to that point too? Because yeah. they might have just had a really terrible day. They do this survey and go, I really hate my teacher today so no yeah Yeah. so so could we actually you know get get a more nuanced understanding Mm. of even how they're conceptualizing belonging absolutely and then could we actually get a better measurement of belonging yeah um and so that's that's where where we're actually looking at going with that yeah really important work and i will stay tuned and keep an eye on what's (laughs) going on there yeah cool and we're getting really close to the end of our time it really flies when we do a podcast um, and I don't think I told you beforehand, so I'm sorry to spring this on you. <laughs> um, but I always end the podcast with five questions that I ask each guest. Exciting. Um, yeah, they're just gut answers. So don't feel too, um, too worried about what you say. <laughs> um, but the first one is, what did you want to be when you were a kid? So this one uh, is actually changed pretty much like every week. Yep. So my sister always knew that she wanted to be an astronomer, yep. which is what she became. Oh, cool. Um, me, it kind of was like, oh, I'll be a doctor. Oh, I'll be a, 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 a marine biologist. I'll be a firefighter. <laughs> I'll be a teacher. Um, teacher became like the one I kind of settled on. Mm-hmm. So um, people always told me I was like really good with kids. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of like what I thought I would, I would become. And I actually started uni. Oh, yeah. Um, in education for yeah. early education. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then I changed my major to psychology. Yeah. And so then it sort of has become full circle because I ended up in education. Yeah. Just at the university level as exactly. opposed to early education. Yeah, for sure. So it sort of came full, full yeah. circle. Yeah. And a lot of your work has influenced school yeah. and teachers. And exactly. Teachers, so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, the second question is, what are your two top values? And it's deliberately only two. It's a little bit hard, but if you can only name two. My two top values is integrity. Mm-hmm and um respect yeah yeah very good ones very strong ones (laughs) um the third question is a bit silly and a bit fun um and something i don't know if i've ever told you but i'm actually i'm really into the sport of boxing oh wow yeah so that's my my extreme sport (laughs) um but the question is if you were going to have a boxing fight what would be your walkout song so it's the song that they play while you're walking out to the ring to get you all revved up ready to fight Oh, it's probably the toughest question. <laughs> I would say we are the champions. Oh, good one. Yeah, yep. nice. That's yep. a good one. I've been thinking about even maybe making a playlist of everyone's choices. Yep. Because <laughs> it'd just be like a big like rev up playlist. That'd be really. awesome. Yeah, I think I might have to do it. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, the fourth question is if you could collaborate with anyone um, in the field, dead or alive, who would it be? And you may have already done it. Who knows? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. Um. Yeah, that's a hard one because I've collaborated with a lot of people. Yeah, you have. Um, Is there anyone that you haven't that you just were like, oh, I really wish I was, they were alive in my time? Or <laughs> Oh, I'm not sure. That's okay. I think you've collaborated with a lot of amazing people. I so. really have. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, I'll, I'll take a pass on that Yeah, that's then. fine. Because honestly, like if we look at the list of names of papers that you've written and things like yeah. that, there's some pretty amazing people. Yeah, there really are. Yeah. I, I've been very blessed with just like how many people I've, I've had the opportunity to collaborate with. Yeah. And um, it's been a pretty amazing career. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so good to hear. That's actually the best answer we could have is that you've already done it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the last question is a really, um, I think, a really strong one, which is if you could recommend one step that everyone could take towards healing, what would it be? Uh, it would really be f- take care of your own mental health. Mm. P- prioritize that because if you don't have your own well-being, then you can't take care of the well-being of others. Yeah. I've learned that the hard way. Yeah. So, you know, prioritize yourself and then help others. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Peggy. And thanks so much for sharing your story today too because I feel like there's a lot of key towards people's healing and towards how we can all be much more well as well. So thank you so much for being vulnerable and opening up about your own experience today too. My pleasure. Thank you, wonderful listeners, for making it right to the end of the podcast. We appreciate you. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe, give us a rating. We'll be dropping a new episode roughly once per fortnight, so you can stay tuned for the next one. Thank you.